Welcome to a new episode of Whiplash Agile, where we focus on the failures that are necessary to be successful on an agile journey, because there are always valuable lessons to be learned from someone else's struggles and stumbles. I'm Jeff Anderson, your host and CEO of Agile by Design. Scott, thanks for coming on board. Uh, our first inaugural podcast for Whiplash Agile. It's good to have you here. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Always good to uh, hang out with you. So I'm going to kick it off. Uh, speaking of hanging out, I think the first time I met you was what, 2005, 2006, something along. It would have been around that time. For, yes, a while ago. Yeah, kind of scary, right? So I remember back then, you know, um, I was just getting into the agile coaching and consulting thing. I was a recovering architect at the time. And you were already uh, a well-known authority figure in agile way back then, but not just known for being in the agile space, but known for being critical of the agile space. I was wondering if you could tell me like what drew you to agile in the first place? What also, you know, kind of turned you off and like what what are some of the objections that you had that you saw going on? So give me a bit of the good and the bad. Yeah, definitely. So I guess it, it all goes back to the mid nineties. So I've been a, a public speaker and a writer for well since around then. And I was you know, a speaker with the software development conferences back in the day, uh, and they were fantastic. So I was hanging out with, you know, the Kent Becks of the world, the you know Jim Highsmiths of the world, and it, you know, literally half of the the original seventeen that uh, you know wrote the Agile Manifesto. And I, at the time, I was big into CMMI or CMM at the time, and uh, you know, I had you know drunk that Kool Aid. And had a couple books out on the topic. And I uh, went out for dinner once with uh, Jim Highsmith, who being a phenomenally polite gentleman, he uh, basically walked me through why I was completely and utterly wrong, which I was. And that sort of was a wake up call. Uh, plus, I, you know, I, I attended one of the one of Kent Beck's first uh, tutorials on extreme programming. So I started seeing all this stuff. And I also started seeing how the, the heavyweight software development stuff simply wasn't working the you know, wonderful theory but in practice it really left a lot to be desired so i started working on uh well unified process at the time and as well as uml and i started working and identifying really lightweight ways of modeling uh, which was very radical at the time like things that ideas like using post-it notes and whiteboards was you know, really sort of leading edge and, and uh, antithetical to, to uh, what was actually going on in the modeling community. And so then when the uh, Agile Manifesto was published, uh, it just struck a chord with me. And I started uh, and I published a, a, an article on Software Development Magazine about extreme modeling, which was how do you model on an extreme programming project? But then that quickly morphed into agile modeling and then it uh, worked out and then documentation got thrown in as well. I think that's one of your favorite um, works, even to this day, is the agile modeling method. It's just a breath of fresh air way back then. It is, yeah. And and it I, I think I would argue, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I, I think it doesn't get the credit it deserves. Um, I, you know, myself and a few others really sort of fought the good fight back then and paved the way to a lot of the phenomenally common techniques that are available now and and that are that are the norm now so i you know I, you know so we definitely won uh, you know we won that battle uh, over the long run and i started working on the agile data method as well taking on the these issues around how do you 
how do you take an agile approach to data management and data engineering and all these critical activities that were you know being ignored by the development community and still in many ways it you know is ignored the you know you, you talk to a lot of developers and say well, I don't need to worry about database stuff because we just encapsulate access well yeah maybe but somebody does need to worry about it and and because they're not worrying about it effectively and dealing with it effectively this is probably why you have so much data technical debt which is running you aground on your data warehousing efforts data driven decisions and of course artificial intelligence we're going to get into artificial intelligence in a second because that's i think there's a fascinating overlap between um what people are doing in the agile world and artificial intelligence but before we do that if you were to think of, you know, let's call it the agile verse today or whatever we want to call it and what it's morphed into, I think of the, some of the criticisms you had back then. How would you say agile has evolved or devolved or anywhere in between right now? Do some of these criticisms still stand? Is, are there different criticisms? I th- well, you know, the criticisms have expanded, actually. So back in the day, you know, early 2000s, I was very critical of the Scrum certification strategy. You know, this, you know, show up for two days in a workshop. And as long as your check doesn't bounce, uh, you know, back in the day, we had checks, at the, you know, back then. But if, if your check doesn't bounce, congratulations, you're a certified master. And, you know, at, and at the time, in the early days, you know, a few dogs earned their CS or, you know, had their CSM bought for them. Dogs, like pets. And they had to put a rule in place to, to you know, not certify pets anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a true story. So, you know, the lean dog guys did it. Uh, you know, so anyways. Oh, I, have to, I have to talk to these guys. That's amazing. Yeah, I was, and I was very critical of this, you know, dumbing down of Agile. Because if you compare, you know, extreme programming, which required significant skill and was hard to learn and hard to do, and, you know, required significant discipline to pull off, and then compared to Scrum, which is, yeah, let's run a few meetings, and, you know, here's a few cheesy roles that you might want to play. Difference in night and day. And what happened was everybody jumped on the Scrum bandwagon because it was easy, right? It was easy, very easy cert. What's not to like about that? And People were being rewarded for having, you know, their CSM uh, rewarded well. So, you know, you know, very little effort and suddenly you get a bump in salary. So, you know, what's not to like? And the problem was, was that the heart of Agile, which was really all about how do we do small team software development effectively um, was lost. And the, cause, and the challenge is, is you can't, it's very difficult to put a certification around something as you know challenging and you know requiring as much expertise as extreme programming does and they didn't do it they they, you know they they didn't get on that bandwagon and so what happened is everything got dumbed down and we see this today like you know so today here we are 20 years later and everybody's you know shocked that agile coaches are struggling to find jobs now and and it's because well there's all these people that took two entire days of training might have been on one or two projects and suddenly they're pitching themselves as an agile coach well that's, that's just shame that's, that's it's not ethical it simply isn't ethical and the and what's happened is these organizations don't know who they're hiring and what happened and and, and up to up until a couple of years ago there was so much demand for agile coaches you could get away with this now what's happening i think companies have, have clued in that they're not getting value from a lot of their coaches and as a result they're not hiring them anymore and and rightfully so so the you know the the rate for coaches has dropped um, significantly and um and I, and I think it's because we we didn't police that we you know there's no barrier to entry to become an agile coach and 
as a result, it just got watered down to the point of nothingness. And I think that's a real shame. Do you think there's any way to reclaim the agile coaching brand from where it is right now? Or do you feel like it's a lost cause and it's, it's kind of time to move on and do other things or, or focus on it in another way? It's pretty much a lost cause. I think there there's definitely need for some form of coaching, some form of you know, training and coaching and help. But until there's barriers to entry, until there is a way to vet these coaches and having a and a having a reasonable certification that's hard to earn and that means something, then we're never going to get there. And uh, we also, you know, I think we got too much into the touchy feely stuff. Uh, and, and there's value in that. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, there there's certainly value in you know in emotional intelligence and all these good sorts of things. But you also need to have the skills that you're coaching people in, right? So if you want to be a you know an agile coach of a software development team you darn well better know how to develop software and you'd better be reasonably good at it and you'd better understand your options. So, and, and the metaphor I like to use is one of a, a sports coach, right? So I've got a young daughter and if I wanted to, you know, and right now she's, you know, uh, she's learning a sport, but when I, you know, so say she wanted to learn soccer, you know, European football, when I don't know anything about European football, other than, you know, it's played on a field, they kick a ball around and you, you know, you hit it in the net and you score. That's, that's my level of knowledge. But I could hire a soccer coach because I know I would expect them to have played soccer for many years. I would expect to hear a story about how, you know, how maybe they, you know, they worked their way up and then it didn't work out for them. Or maybe they were a professional player at one point, but now they're older and they're coaching, right? Or they blew up their knees. I want to hear a story like that. I want to see some experience of how they've, how they've coached before. They've coached teams. They're working their way up through the soccer coaching world, whatever that happens to be. And so I want to hear a story. I want to hear stories about that. And, and, and I want to see them, how they're out in the field coaching kids to learn how to play soccer, right? So, so this, is a f- this is basic fundamental thinking. And yet, when it comes to companies hiring agile coaches, they just park their brains at the door. It's like they don't know enough to ask, so you want to get a job as an agile coach for a software team. How many years, and I would, I would expect a decade or two of experience, do you have on agile software teams? Or at least, at least software teams, if not agile teams. And if you don't have that, you shouldn't be coaching. Sorry. I, I have you know, it's got interesting because I do res- like really respect that perspective because I've seen what happens when you don't respect that perspective. I've, I've also had some good experience in bringing people in who are just incredibly willing to learn and learn fast and incredibly willing to, to get deep within it. I was wondering it, it, like what your perspective is. Is it that people don't have the experience or they don't feel like the experience is even an expectation? Like they don't even feel like they need to learn it. So you'll get a scrum master or a coach on a team and they don't even think it's their job to understand the domain at all. I think that's the problem. And, and I see that I see that with project managers as well. Um, I just a, a couple hours ago, I had a discussion with some PMs who um, didn't appreciate my attitude that if you want to be a project manager of a software team, you'd better understand the fundamentals of software. Um, and they go, well, what do you mean? I don't need to be technical. Yeah, you do. And because uh, the, the techies won't listen to you. So anyways. Yeah, they won't respect you. And you won't be able to make the right decisions. And you, know. you won't be able to make the right decisions. Yeah, exactly. So and I think like there's something to be said about fast learners and willing to learn. That's that's great. But it does take years to get good at software development. And and the because it's complex and there's intricacies and there's uh, there are like almost like laws of physics in the software world that you need to understand. And uh, I, I ran into a team once that uh, ran, ran aground on Brooks's law. You know, Brooks's law, for those of you who don't know, is you add you add somebody to a late to a late software project, you make it later. And 
and they and and this was news. <laughs> this was news to them, and and it was one of the primary. They were in trouble anyways. They were going to fail no matter what. But you know, they made the problem worse by adding people to the team in order to try to speed them up, and 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 just many things like that. And, and so and 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 software development is very very fragile. And one or two bad one or two bad mistakes will basically kill it. And, and I'm sure you've seen. Like I've been on efforts where um, pretty much on the first day you knew it was going to fail. The first day, you know, standing it up too fast, people don't know each other maximizing how much like going fast before going slow all that kind of good stuff. and you just look and go oh no here it comes yeah and uh, you know no investment in a little bit of upfront thinking some you know, a little bit of planning a little bit of architecture work a little bit of requirements work uh yeah kiss of death and 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 the weird thing is like some of those ideas i just said go against what people are being certified in and so it's like so basic realities on the ground aren't being respected by what's getting taught in these certs uh, and the little information that's being taught in certs. Talk about your cert for a so so talk about your cert for a se- your certs for a second and some of the things that you think you're doing differently. So like you know I'm I'm thinking dad specifically you know um basically some of the literature and frameworks that you brought to the table and how do they differ from some of the other things that people might be looking through out there? Yeah, so when I f- when I first led the development of agile modeling, I refused to do a cert because I was seeing the scrum scam that was at the beginning of development. I was invited in in the very early days and I refused to do it. But many of us refused to do it because it was obviously, you know, not, you know, questionable at best. And so I, I refused to do that for Agile Modeling. And that was probably a mistake, <laughs> but, you know, I could have made a lot of money and, uh, and, and that wasn't really the issue, but it was more, uh, I could have done a lot of good in the industry by putting together a reasonable certification that you had to earn. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't be in this position where we're in where there's so many people who are anti-architecture and anti, anti-modeling, anti-thinking. And aren't the architects kind of left out with all this agile stuff in a lot of places anyway? So this could have been something that was for them. We could give them a path forward, I think, you know, so. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, so, but anyway, so, so I didn't do that with agile modeling. I certainly didn't do that with agile data. And I'm not sure any sort of certification would have taken off in that space because, I don't think the the data crowd's not really into that for the most part. But then with uh, Dispin Agile, first of all, Dispin Agile Delivery, which we originally developed at, at, when I was at IBM, I led the development of it there. And, and Mark Lines, my uh, business, who eventually became my business partner and co-author of the first dad book and you know huge contributor into the overall uh, toolkit. Um, we, uh, we didn't put a cert- certification around that. Um, cause I was anti-cert, you know, I, I just didn't believe in certification and still sort of struggle with it. But, um, you know, as long as you, if you're learning good stuff and you've got to earn the cert, um, then I, I'm, I'm fairly happy with it and I don't have to agree with the material you're learning. I, you know, I would prefer to agree with the material, but, um, if you have to earn, like I'm, I'm looking in certifications, did you do something to actually earn it or did you just buy it. Um, and most of the Agile certs you buy. And it, and the, the people behind them, they spin these stories. But at the end of the day, you know, attending a workshop for a couple of days and then passing a test that vir- virtually nobody fails, that's not really, you're not doing much to earn your cert. And I'm just, you know, I'm sorry if you disagree with that, but it's... I'm sorry, uh, would you consider earning to be like real work in the field? As an example of earning, or what are some? Yeah, like real work in the field, or you know, a multi-month effort to to earn the cert. So maybe you do some training, then you do some work, more training, more work. Maybe you get tested. Uh, you know, maybe you have to do interviews with people who are a higher level up in the certification scheme. All that good, good sort of stuff. And the problem is that's hard to scale, which is why people don't want to. You know, the, the people running certifications really prefer to avoid those sorts of things. But the 
so anyway, so with Discipline Agile, um, we really didn't want to, to run a cert program. But then, you know, so then, you know, I, I left IBM, I formed uh, Scott Emler and Associates with Mark Lines, which then uh, got reworked to Discipline Agile Inc. And around probably 2015, 2016, we re- it was becoming blatantly obvious that if we didn't have a certification program for DA, that we were in trouble. And because people just want it, they expect, you know, Nobody wants to buy a, an Agile class anymore if they don't get some cert, right? Uh, that's how bad it's gotten in this industry. And so anyway, so we had to do that. But I wouldn't just give people certs just because they, you know, oh, you've got a heartbeat. Okay, congratulations, you're certified. Yeah, you got to actually earn it. So we put together a fairly hard cert program. And it was, you know, the first level was fairly easy to get in, but anything meaningful, you really, you know, you had to have several years of experience in between certs, right, as well as just in general, and you had to pass a really hard test and, and so on. So it, and then and to get up to the coaching cert, uh, you had to, you had to know your stuff, um, you had to pass the, pre, the, you know, the lower level certs, but you also had to get interviewed and where we would give you very hard, you know, reasonably hard challenges. Uh, from the field, often what is things that we were dealing with with clients at the present moment, uh, because it's always good to get a second opinion as to you know, how to address an issue. But uh, and then we put you through the paces, and not everybody passed those interviews. Uh, some people had to you know, had to come back, you know, six months, a year, two years later, and try again. So, and that was the other thing too. I want to see a failure rate, like a significant failure rate. So we were on the tests, we were running about an eighty percent uh, pass rate. Um, initial pass rate and uh, particularly in the first instance. and and then it was it was interesting that we had a much higher success rate on the uh, next level test which was much harder but we had already trained people oh, that when we say this is a real test it's a real test and a lot it was interesting a lot of the scrum people uh, would get nailed the first time on the test because they had no concept of a real test and uh, oh my god it, i had no i had no the material yeah you do yeah sorry <laughs> you're not going to get a cert if you don't know the material so anyway so yeah so we had to make it real and and we did uh, and then um, pmi uh, bought us in 2019 uh, and then uh, they have uh, their certification process, but their certification process is pretty solid. You, you might not agree with everything they do, but you know when somebody's certified from PMI, you know you know it means something. So, so I'm going to ask one more dad-related question, and then I gotta, we're going to go on to uh, the topic of AI. How would you differentiate dad from the way other frameworks are scaled in terms of its openness, in terms of its you know um, we both we both you know where I'm getting at. We both have a, a similar opinion when it comes to fixed methodologies as a way to increase agility. Talk about how DAD's a little bit different from that approach. Yeah, definitely. So so DA, you know, Discipline Agile is a toolkit. It's not a framework. It's not a method. And so what, what I mean by that is that it's generative. You use it to choose your own way of working. Um, you know, we make some suggestions, but nothing is prescriptive. So where you have other frameworks like Scrum and Safe and others, where they have one way of doing things, that's prescriptive. Those are, you know, well-defined prescriptive ways of going about it. and there's like wonderful marketing rhetoric for the why they're not prescriptive but you know I invite people to you know look up the the definition of the word uh, prescription and then and then tell me that they're not prescriptive but anyways um yeah so uh, DA is not is not prescriptive we did that on purpose and the reason why is when we first started developing the 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 approach uh, at IBM, uh, well, first of all, I did not ever, you know, when I joined IBM, I was pretty clear to them, I did not ever want to develop another method. I've been there, done that, no longer interested. Uh, so I was sort of dragged into uh, the development of DA. And, uh, but what happened was based on two observations. First was that, uh, you know, people needed help. They needed some guidance as to how to choose their own way of working. 
But they also had the issue that everybody was working differently. Everybody's in a different situation. So context really counts. And this is this is phenomenally easy to observe if, if you choose to, that everybody works differently. So how do you define a method? When- what would you say to people that say that, no, 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 it's, it's the same and we just need one standard approach? And what do you mean it's different? That doesn't make any sense. What, what's yeah, the- yeah, exactly. And, and usually when I hear that nonsense, I, I, I instantaneously start asking questions like, really, so you expect a team of five people to work differently than a team, to work the exact same as a team of 50. Your marketing team is going to work the same as your so- as a software team um, and so on. A team that's globally distributed will work the same as a team that's in the same room. Come on, give me a break. Right. So you can very easily shoot down that that just ignorant nonsense when it gets down to it. Um, but anyways, but it's a belief system. You know, it's, they've got their belief system and in reality generally doesn't come into play. Uh, but that's OK. So it took us a while to figure it out. But we realized we instead of telling people what to do, we had to tell them what. Here's what you need to think about. So when you're you know, when you're you know, worried about requirements or you're worried about architecture or governance or programming or whatever, here are the issues you need to think about. Here are options to address each one of these issues. And here are the trade-offs of those options. Because I don't know anything about you, you or your situation, I can't tell you what to do. Unlike the people behind the prescriptive methods who are so arrogant, they think they can tell you what to do. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I tell you what to think about and I help you make better choices. So I want to put you in a position where you can choose a, the strategy that's best for you. And so Discipline Agile is really a hybrid. So the, the name is wrong. Um, it should be like Discipline Hybrid or something, but it came out of Agile. But it, it includes you know, very traditional strategies, um, lean strategies, Agile strategies, because I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what your situation is. So all I can, you know, so sometimes a very traditional strategy might be the, the most appropriate thing for what you're trying to achieve right now. Um, and that's okay, right? Choose wisely. And I think, and I think this is the, the challenge in the agile community, particularly with these coaches, is that because they don't have the experience to back up their title, they take, they start doing, you know, they start spouting nonsense. Like, well, let's fail fast. Let's just make crap up. We'll experiment with it because I don't know what I'm doing. So I, we're going to make up some ideas and we're going to experiment and we're going to fail fast. And that's okay because we're actually learning. We're not failing. No, you're still failing and you don't need to fail as often as you do because you're, you know, you're, you're facing challenges that many other people before you have faced. So why not leverage their learnings as opposed to wasting all this time? making the same learnings again, right? It's it, it, absolutely crazy. But this is the problem when you have all these inexperienced coaches, the best they can do is to fail fast and they'll fail fast a lot. Or rely on a, me- a framework without realizing why the framework works or doesn't. And then- Yeah, just blindly full of recipe. I couldn't agree more um, with that. It, it's interesting how the open-ended new ways of working approach really, I think Disciplined Agile is one of the few offerings out there that's managed to hit some scale with it. Kanban method's probably another one, but it, it, the, the scale almost gets dwarfed by the, the adoption rate of things like Scrum and Safe. Uh, let's hope that, that, you know, that kind of turns around as people see the evidence and the outcome and the outputs and maybe some of this noise gets. I hope so. I think that one thing I've known, so PMI has a marketing challenge on their hands, but, um, one of the things that I've noticed is that, um, because the Scrum and the Safe, like all these prescriptive methods are so prevalent and this fail fast, uh, you know, we're in a unique situation, therefore we need to fail fast attitude is so prevalent. Uh, all these, all these coaches and these practitioners can't even imagine that somebody else has figured this out and can provide advice. Like they, it, it's really, it's, it's a shock. I've run into a lot of experienced people who, who then would take training with me. And then at the end of the first day, you know, they invariably they'd come up to me and they say, Oh my God, 
I can't believe that, you know, you know, there's so many things that, you know, we're struggling with, with Scrum. And not only do you have solutions, you've got multiple solutions and you can tell us the trade-offs. We had no idea. Like we've been struggling with this one problem for months and you gave me four different ways of approaching it. They're making it up from scratch without any looking at the fact that. Yeah. And, and it was like, no, fa- there's no failing fast. There's no making crap up. It was just, yeah, I just happened to invest in time to learn my trade uh, and it can put things into context for you. Let's switch tracks a little bit. I know you've been up to something uh, quite different. I wouldn't say quite different, but it's it's a new kind of passion focus of yours, which is artificial intelligence. First of all, um, start with maybe telling us why you 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 where that's coming from and and why you you've gotten so involved in this, and where do you see the overlap in terms of agile in general, and how could AI help agile practitioners? Yeah, definitely. So when I left PMI you know, two summers ago, I was sort of looking around for something to do. And I I, I was you know, sort of stumbled into AI. And this was about a month or two just before ChatGPT3 came out and, you know, all the big, you know, hullabaloo there. So it looks as if I'm jumping on the bandwagon, but I'm really not. But anyways, you know, be that as it may. And so I went back to school to earn a master's, a master's degree in AI. And some of it is to leverage my data background, because um, I've got a deep background in data, and data quality really, you know, is a passion. And uh, data quality is this very serious issue in AI. And I started uh, attending online AI conferences, and it was interesting. I was seeing like these fantastic speakers, and invariably, like roughly a third of them would be, you know, they'd be speaking along, blah 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 blah, is what we're doing. And then, and data quality is a really big problem. Somebody should do something about that. And that was the level of their, that was the level of their, of their advice. Somebody needs to do something about it. And, and invariably, like literally a third of these they speakers. They don't have the data background necessarily, right? So. Yeah, well, they don't. Yeah, that's the problem, right? So they're all doing data cleansing and complaining about it and, and rightfully so. But, um, you know, somebody really does need to sort of address this problem and, and do something about it. So I've been in school now for a little over a year and, and having a great time and, you know, learning a lot, of, learning a lot of good stuff. But I've been sharing what I've been learning and doing a little bit of consulting on the side as well. And I've noticed that you know, there isn't great advice for how do you run an AI initiative. So you're, you know, you're at the Royal Bank of Canada. How does the Royal Bank of Canada run an AI, you know, project or an, and it's not really a project; it's an initiative. No, no, it's you just need sprints and you're good to go. Yeah, you just need sprints. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so the problem is, is you need a, you know, the ch- the answer is you need a hybrid approach, right? You've got to do some upfront thinking. You've, uh, it really, there are phases. Uh, it's, it, it's, it is iterative. You, you're gonna, you know, release in, you know, multiple models in a production. There'll be feedback. You'll, you learn stuff. You've got to you know, re-release and so on, right? So it's not a project. It's not purely agile. You know, it's, it's agile and lean, but there's also some uh, traditional stuff in there as well. And you darn well better respect that. So, you know, I think uh, certainly the predictive serial approaches will have a, a success rate of roughly zero. But the if you if you take a pure agile approach, you're going to run aground as well, because you're not going to be doing the modeling you need, you're not going to be doing uh, the exploration that you need, and so on. So I think there, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And then and then there's all the data stuff. And that I think is what's really sort of um, catching organizations up because they've allowed their data technical debt to grow over the years. And uh, now, you know, now they're really running around and uh, they got to pay the data piper. There's like decades of technical debt, isn't there, right? So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you're, and there's nothing you can do now. You've got to fix it, period. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, interesting implications of that. So anyway, so this is what I'm uh, uh, going to be focusing on, like leveraging uh, the agile data, particularly the agile data material uh, for AI, uh, because I think there's a, just a huge need for uh, somebody to have a coherent strategy for, uh, for organizations. 
that's really interesting. So in a way, I, I didn't even think the, that that's kind of a direction you're going to take this. So if I'm hearing you, it's take all that. And by the way, I've read Agile Data. I've read most of your books, by the way. Um, I've read the Agile Data book. Um, and I feel like that's one of those tombs that is in the back of the shelf when it should be in the front of everybody's shelf because it tells you how to refactor databases, how to evolve your data structures gracefully over time. So if I hear you, you're going to take some of that material and try to get it to have some more prominence um, so that you can help actually these you know, large AI initiatives clean up their data so that we can actually um, get some meaningful common sense out of all the great services that are coming out of all these things. Exactly. And actually, it was interesting. The, uh, you know, all the material from the Agile Database Technique book is, is published now and has been updated since it was published at agiledata.org. So it's all there you know, freely available, uh, plus more, of course. But the, uh, the Refactoring Databases book, which came out after that, uh, was recently given an award, uh, sort of an award, uh, internally uh, at ThoughtWorks is the what I heard. And it was, uh, it was nominated as the most underappreciated book in software engineering and uh, and i I would i i've got sadly i've got to agree with that uh because it's it really is um the key to uh improving data to improve your data sources at the source um and it's written from the point of view of a of a production database and that's exactly what people have got to fix and that's what all these organizations are struggling with so you know if you really want to figure it out, uh, you know, Google refactoring databases. So are we going to see um, the equivalent of agile data as an agile AI and perhaps some advice on order of operations, flow of work, kind of models you need to look at, how to do that in, an, you know, in a more iterative and agile way? Is that something that's going to be part of what's coming well, out of well, There's already a lot of great material about that, but it's, you know, it's oriented towards you know, hardcore developers. But yeah, I recently published an article uh, overviewing a machine learning life cycle from beginning to end and then back again because it's iterative. But you know, there, I think there's uh, more need for that. But certainly, uh, I've also been working on data quality, uh, explaining data quality techniques, and more importantly, how to choose the data quality techniques. So just like in, in Discipline Agile, we described how to choose techniques in general. Um, when you focus in on a narrow domain like data quality, you can start getting really specific about here are the factors you really need to be thinking about, and here's when you need to think about them. So I've basically narrowed it down to to five factors, arguably six, but I talk about five, and they say so. Here's the five factors I would look at, and then here's where combinations of those factors matter because you need to choose the right strategy for the right point in the life cycle for the right for the situation that you find yourself in. So depending on where you're in the life cycle, some factors are more important than others. And as a result, some technique, you know, depending on um, the technique, some techniques are better given a combination of two factors than, you know, the same techniques with combination of another two factors. So you really want to choose intelligently. And it's interesting, the, um, it, so there's no best practices, of course, and there's no, there's no secret magic bullet. There's no one way to do it. There's no magic bullet other than you really do need to, you need to know what you're doing and you need to make decisions and tailor your, tailor your way of working to the situation that you face. Um, and if you're not willing to do that, you're going to run aground. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Well, that, well, that's really good advice. Um, and I think that's something that uh, anybody who's interested in new ways of working and new ways of thinking um, uh, should adopt. Um, we're just about out of time. Is there anything that you wanted to, um, you know, uh, talk through or, you know, anything you want to point people towards if they want to learn more about all this great stuff that you're doing? Yeah. So, you know, drop by scottambler.com. I, I blog regularly there. I also, um, you know, uh, post articles at agiledata.org. 
agilemodeling.com and ambisoft.com. But if you go to the Scott Ambler site, it then links to, to those other sites. But if you're interested in the, particularly in the data issues, agiledata.org is something you probably want to bookmark. Well, I, I'm certainly going to take a look. I've, uh, you've opened my, uh, I didn't expect to, you to go in some of these directions. And now I'm like thinking through it. I'm like, there's some really interesting avenues to go explore on my own. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I got a lot of this podcast. I want to thank you a lot for, for joining us and uh, help us uh, start this new series of the bank. Yeah. Oh, my, my pleasure. Always happy to always talk. Always happy to talk with you, Jeff. Take care, Scott. You do. Thanks again for joining me on Whiplash Agile. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. If you want to connect with me, join me on LinkedIn or Twitter slash X. And if you like what you hear, or especially if you don't like what you hear, get in touch with me directly at agilebydesign.com.